you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to ask you to go to two places. The first place is Ephesians chapter 4. The first place is Ephesians chapter 4. I want to read verses 1 to 14 for you this morning. But then I want you to go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. That's where we're going to be preaching from, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'll be looking at verses 17 to the end of the chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 5. But I want you to go first to Ephesians chapter 4. As this morning, Lord willing, we will finish looking at how the church should treat their elders. And what you need to know is why does the church have leadership? We've been studying how the church, if we are the people of God or we are the church, how should God's people live life? How are we to be a testimony to a watching world, especially as we see our world seemingly run away from God? How can we be shining witnesses of grace? How can we be examples without us being right at the top of our lungs? Too many Christians are yelling and screaming instead of living and praying. And so we need to learn how to be the church. But I want to read this because the full scope of what I want to talk to you about of the purpose of elders. So here in Ephesians 4, Paul kind of tells you why you have leaders. And then in 1 Timothy 5, that'll tell you then how you should treat your leaders. So you need to understand why we've got them if you're going to be motivated to treat them properly. So here's what Paul says. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So right off the bat, are we Christians, if we claim to be Christians, are we walking in a way that says, I walk according to what I say I am? If I claim to be a Christian, does my life, do my words, do my actions, do my relationships, do the way I treat people really cry out that I am what I claim to be? Then he goes on to say, here's what this worthy calling looks like. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Notice this, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now let me ask you, personalize this. Is this true of your relationships? Is this true in your family? Is this true in your marriage? Is this true with the people that you are in community with here at Calvary Baptist Church? Can we say we are a people who want to be humble and gentle and patient with each other? We want to bear in love with one another, and we are eager. We're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Now Paul tells you what all that looks like in verse 4. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us. Paul includes himself with everybody else. He says grace was given to all of us. Do you want to know how you do this? You realize how gracious God has been. Now, here's why this grace was given to you. It wasn't just a pile of free will or pile of goodwill, a pile of something so you and I could just have it. It's supposed to do something. If you've been given grace, if you've experienced grace, it does something according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, verse 9 explains what he just said. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is the godness of Christ. And he gave, now here's why we're going to look at 1 Timothy 5. 
This Christ who saved us, who equipped us, who lavished his grace on us, established his church, and he calls the church his bride. I would think then that's pretty important to Jesus. And notice what he says. And he gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, and notice this, the shepherds and teachers. And that's actually one phrase. That's not two different groups. That's describing one group. And I would say that's where you get your elders, your pastors. Now, here's why you have these people. Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. So it's not for the elders to do all the work and the people of the church to come and be consumers or to be entertained or have your ears tickled or to make sure you're the judges of what happens. No, the the leadership of the church has been given to teach and preach, to shepherd and pastor and call every Christian a part of a church to Do the work of the ministry. Now, here's how long you do it. Verse 13. Until we all, not most, not some, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Why? Here's the result of this. If you will be shepherded, if you will be equipped, if you will be taught and instructed, if you will be counseled, here's what happens. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now take your Bible and go to 1 Timothy 5. Now, I want you to realize what happens if you don't have good leadership. If a church is not set up, and it was interesting how the Lord does this for me through His Holy Spirit, that every week that I'm going to preach on a subject, something comes across my desk or my computer that is just relevant. So I was poking around CNN, looking at all the different headlines, and one caught my eye, which was this, Sheep Invade Spanish City. So, Steve, let's show this little video if we can. A flock of 1,300 sheep wandered off into this Spanish city. I wish we had uh, sound effects so you could hear this, but um, there's a lot of and a lot of bells ringing and so on and so forth. Now, here's what you need to know why this was so important. Because the shepherd of this flock of sheep fell asleep. And they got spooked. And all left, and if you notice, can we show that again? I just want you to notice this, right? This is what kills me about these sheep. Notice this first row, and then everybody else can basically only see a rear end. And they just follow the rear end. There's a rear end wiggling and moving, so I'm just going to follow the rear end. And I want you to, there we go. You hear the, the cow the cowbell and all that? So I want you to understand the reason why God has structured his church the way he has, the reason why you're to have pastors, elders, the reason you're supposed to have leaders, and the reason they're supposed to do their job is because if a, sheep fall, a shepherd falls asleep, sheep wander. Now, I want you to also embrace what that means. If you believe that a church should have good leadership, it means you're owning that you're a sheep. And easily led astray, easily wander off, easily spooked, easily fooled. There's a whole write-up on this article, if you want to, I can send it to you, about how they literally overtook the town. 
and then they had to go find the shepherd and wake him up, and I think that is all pertinent. So today, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, look in verse 17, because if you're going to have good leaders, if God intended for his bride, the church, to be structured a certain way, to have leaders, and those leaders are to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, and it's supposed to do a certain thing, then we need to understand how the church should treat their leaders. And so Paul, reminding Timothy, sending him to Ephesus, says this, let the elders notice plural. I will always say this everywhere from Genesis to Revelation, eldership, leadership is always in plurality, never in singularity. And in fact, where there is singularity, the Bible will almost always correct it. All right, even at Moses, if you remember, Moses was leading all the people of Israel, and his father in law comes to him, Jethro, and says, You're an idiot. Um, you're going to kill yourself trying to do this. And so he establishes a plurality of elders, of leaders. And so Paul says, let the elders, plural, who rule well, so I want you to take note of that, rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now it seems Paul changes in verse 19. He moves from one thought in 17 and 18 to another thought in 19. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. If you've been doing your Robert Murray McShane Bible reading, you read about this this morning in Deuteronomy. Except for two or three witnesses. Verse 20, as for those who persist in sin, talking about elders, rebuke them in the presence of all. Why? So that the rest may stand in fear. Now, he gaze out why this is so important in verse 21. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and, so, and, uh, sorry, and the elect angels, I charge you, Timothy, to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. In other words, no favoritism. Cowardliness is not an excuse. This is the way this is supposed to go. Now, he changes thought again in verse 22. So there's a thought in 17 and 18. There's a thought in 19 through 21. Here's another thought. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, verse 23 is quite controversial, and everybody on either side of this particular issue, a.k.a. drinking, will know this verse where Paul says, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Then he finishes off, I think, with a massive thought in verses 24 and 25. He says to Timothy, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. In other words, they're not obvious. And then he flips it in verse 25. So also good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not cannot remain hidden. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So I want to take you first of all, I think there are three big points here. And we really looked at the first point two weeks ago. And that is how the church cares for their elders. That's the point one. If you want to take notes in your bulletin, how the church cares for the elders. Remember I told you about David Platt who says, how the church cares for their elders, their leadership, both financially and otherwise. Notice this, he says, communicates something about its heart. 
How a church cares for its leadership actually tells the world something about that church's heart. Now, I want you to make sure we understand what he's saying. He notices, he says, they are worthy of double honor. But he connects it, he says, those who rule well. And that word rule does not mean dictate, it means lead. It means be responsible for. It means to to care for, to watch out for, all of these types of things. And so a good shepherd is watching out for the flock of God, protecting the flock of God, feeding the flock of God, loving the flock of God. Good shepherds literally know their sheep. A good shepherd, even a flock of 1,300, would know their sheep. Many of them name them and can name them. But if you've ever watched a shepherd, I got to see this so much in Israel. One of my favorite examples of this, I've shared this with you before. We were up in the Golan Heights and a flock of sheep with their shepherd was walking along the main highway and our big bus was barreling down. There was 50 of us on this bus and the shepherd saw us coming and he had his staff and what did the shepherd do? He put himself outside. He was in the line of fire. He was in direct path to the bus, but sheep were kind of being foolish and one particular sheep kind of wanted to stay out on the road because up on the, the bank was a little hard and again, every other sheep behind it was just looking at a rear end so whatever that head sheep did the other sheep just did and then he takes this staff and I watch this he swings it around and he snaps that one out front on the head and this thing shakes its head and moves in and and this is what he did so even loving and he puts himself in harm's way because when we went by him one thing that I was fascinated in Israel is how many mere misses misses we had with human beings I don't know if you could put a piece of paper between that shepherd and our bus But he put himself in harm's way, but he corrected the sheep, he herded the sheep, he corralled them into safety, sometimes even against their will or their lack of judgment. That's what a good shepherd does. So a a good shepherd is one who leads well, rules well, and notice that person is worthy of honor, worthy of honor. We need to understand that that word worthy explains this, it's honor deserved, It's not simply given. You don't just say, well, I guess he's the pastor. They're the elders, so I better give them some honor. No, no, it's worthy. They deserve it, and we need to do that. And so what are the two things that they are worthy of? Number one, remuneration. Remuneration. Notice what our passage says. It says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor. Notice this, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Paul quotes, if you go on in the rest of the passage there, he says, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. Now remember, by way of reminder, Paul is quoting Deuteronomy 25.4 in that first quote. So in other words, if you go to Deuteronomy 25.4, it actually talks about an animal. It says, if an animal who works hard and helps others to be fed, deserves to be fed, then how much more should a fellow believer in the church called by God to serve his church, the bride, deserve to be compensated? The second quote, I think, is actually the more cool of the two quotes. Because it says, Paul quotes Luke chapter 10, verse 7, where Luke is quoting Jesus. Now, watch this. Luke quotes him in Luke 10, 7, word for word. And that's important because not only does it make Paul's point here, but it also shows us that the New Testament was already taking shape. Paul is quoting Luke, who was quoting Christ. So even in the first century, even Paul is recognizing that Luke wrote something and it was the word of God. 
And so whenever anybody tells you, well, you know, you can't really trust your Bible. In fact, I heard it many times in my travels that the Word of God, if you read it, you will find God's Word. No, no, no. When you read the Bible, it is God's Word. That's important for you to believe as a church. You don't read it and find God's Word. You read it and it is God's Word. And this is very important. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 12, Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? He's referring back to Deuteronomy 25. For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. It is for oxen that God is concerned. Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? So elders, leaders that are worthy, those who rule well and they are worthy, worthy of double honor. The double honor is not, so because the, the question can be, well, what's, what's a fair wage for a pastor to get? Well, pastors should represent the church they pastor is what I believe. So based on the age, the education, the experience, and the responsibility of a particular church, a pastor should be able to live like the church he leads. And may I say, although somewhat risking my own self-service, when in doubt, go above and beyond. Don't be cheap with your pastors. And I can say that because you guys haven't been. So this is not an address to Calvary. I've been really blessed by the way you have treated me and my family. But going forward, and may we tell people of other churches, let us not be cheap when it comes to our leadership. But we also need to understand what are the exceptions. Because I believe there are exceptions. Sometimes the size of the church, but that means humility and commitment on both parties. Sometimes church planters aren't going to be able to make as much money in established churches because they're going to need to raise support and you got to go by what a church is able to do and all of these things. So the two sides of double honor are remuneration and secondly, respect. Now I want to make clear that every elder that this church has is automatically worthy of respect every elder. Now, in our case, one of the five of us, uh, actually two of the five of us, has been considered worthy of double honor, which is adding that remuneration, and I'm going to explain that, but make sure that all of you realize that all of the elders of this church are worthy by a God-given edict of respect. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, Paul says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So Paul tells us that pastors, elders who do their job, their calling to preach and teach are worthy of respect. That is what that means, church, is to listen to them when they preach and teach God's word. In Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, he's warned that there's going to time to come there will come a time when folks will either stop listening to their leadership or they'll find pastors who will tell them what they want to hear. And let me just tell you, we're in that time. I see it every day. 
I have pastors that call me and tell me about things and stands they stood for when they wanted to point their church back to the Word of God, back to Jesus Christ, and somebody, a group, an individual, a fraction of that church said, no, we don't want to hear that, and they got rid of that leader only to find a leader who would tell them what they want to hear. But we are called and even commanded as church, as God's people, Ephesians 4, as those who walk worthy of our calling to obey and listen to and follow the example of our pastor elders, those who preach and teach God's word. And that doesn't make them perfect. I've been with you now 16 months almost to the day. You all know one thing about me. That is, I am not perfect. That is the one constant I can say everybody in this church has figured out, even from my preaching, because I will mess up my words and say some really stupid things. In my last ministry, I had a group of college guys who thought it was fun, who literally kept record of all the dumb things I said while I preached. And in fact, I often came into the pulpit with my cell phone and I'd be preaching, and I would say something wrong, or I'd mispronounce a word, and four or five of them would text me and tell me while I was preaching. And a couple of times, it distracted me, because a couple of times, I went, what? Did I say that word wrong? And anyway, so I don't take my cell phone into said pulpit anymore, all right? But the one thing you all know is I'm not perfect. But I let me ask you, and let me tell you something. I'm not saying that we're perfect, and I'm not saying that you follow us simply because we can evoke uh, an authority card. Everywhere the Bible says, follow, Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. You're to follow the elders, remember in Ephesians 4, as they preach and teach the gospel, as they point you to Christ, and I'm calling everybody in this church to be what I love to describe as Berean. The Bereans listened to Paul, and they would go home, and then they'd search the scriptures to see if these things were so. It thrills my heart when people will email me or call me and say, Pastor, I went back, and I was reading what you preached about, and I found this, or I discovered this, or I have a question about this. Did you mean this? That thrills my heart and my soul. But let me also tell you the other side of this coin, how discouraging it is when, as a pastor elder, I point people, people I love People that I will stand before God and give an account for one day. People that I, I, I hold hands with and have cried with and prayed with. And they come and say, Pastor, help me. And I point them to God's word and I point them to Jesus Christ. And they nod their heads and then go and do exactly the opposite of what they've been told. And I can get discouraged. And then God reminds me that we're just sheep. And sheep need to be constantly reminded constantly refocused. So who was worthy? Again, remember, those who rule well, number one. Number two, those who labor in preaching and teaching. Pastors, elders are to be loved. They're supposed to be those that are vocationally called, paid according to that love. They are to be respected, listened to according to the respect God calls. And um, listen, we need to realize that in some cases we're losing this battle. There's too many pretenders in the church. Now, notice something else that's very important in this passage. Paul is not setting up two classes of elder. He is not saying there's the lay elders. I hate that word in church. I have to tell you, I don't believe in a laity. 
We are all priests of priests and priestesses, should I say that, sons and daughters of God. God doesn't have a, a, a little, lower class, a middle class, and a higher class people in his church. We are all his people, including the elders. All elders are worthy of respect, but there will be some of the elders who God gifts, especially to work and labor at preaching and teaching. And the church makes the decision to ask that elder to give up their vocation, alter their rights to private life and even family life, and dedicate themselves to laboring and preaching and teaching, and may I add, prayer. And so that's what I believe. So when, when myself and Steve Daw and Jeff and, and Paul and Daniel get together every couple of Wednesdays, every time we're together, whenever you talk to us, it is not there's Steve and then there's them. There's us. And we lead together and we pray together and we seek God's face together. And this church has decided to say, Steve Bray, we will together give you money so that you don't have to be distracted from anything and you can give yourself unequivocally to the study of God's word and labor in preaching and teaching and labor in prayer and be there for the people no matter what it takes. And that's a high calling and one I take very seriously. But it doesn't make me better than the other guys. It doesn't make me more of a leader than the other guys. And when we get together, you need to know we work together. And if we're not together, then we don't. And every guy in the room has the same amount of say. And so may I add, for those of you that are wondering about, about complementarianism, about men and women, and that we're all equal in value, but we all have different roles, that is true of elders. We are all equal, and while I may have different role or function, it doesn't make me more important. It doesn't give me greater power. It simply means we work together. I fulfill my role. They fulfill theirs in a perfect complement of how God wants his church to run. So I want you to understand that. But in case we think, wow, these pastor dudes get all the power and none of the responsibility. Look at number two, how the church confronts their elders. How does the church confront their elders? And remember I said 17 and 18 is one thought. Verse 19 begins another, and he says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of true two or three witnesses. Now you'll notice it says there, if they persist in sin... Those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all. And here's an interesting statement. So that the rest may stand in fear. So that others may fear. Now, who is this others? I believe it's the other elders and the entire church. And in fact, I would challenge you to be Berean. Go do a study of God's word and you will notice that fear this idea of being in fear of God is a common thread woven through your Bible from Genesis all the way to Revelation. In fact, again, in your Bible reading this morning, in Deuteronomy 17, it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Just like Solomon says in Proverbs, in Acts chapter 5, when Ananias and Sapphira, remember what they did? They sold that piece of land. They see that Barnabas sold all of his land, and he gives everything to the church. And everybody was impressed with Barnabas. I mean, Barnabas sold everything he owned, came and gave it all to the church, and it was like big news in the church. And so Ananias and Sapphira saw that, and they thought, man, I want that kind of credit without that kind of sacrifice. So what do they do? They sell their land, they keep half of it and invest it, and they come and they give half of it and act like they gave it all. And we know that God's judgment was very quick, swift, and severe because both of them were stricken dead. And the end of Acts chapter 5, it says, and great fear fell upon all the church. 
Now, that wasn't the kind of fear where we're paralyzed in the sense of now, you know, God's ticked and what are we all going to do? No, it made the church realize we need to be real with our words and real with our relationship with Jesus Christ and stop pretending. If there's a place, folks, where human beings should not have to pretend, it's here. It's before God. It doesn't matter where you're at in your journey of faith. It doesn't matter where you're at in your giving or your walk with God or how much of your Bible you know or don't know. As long as you're getting up and putting one step in front of the other and saying, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want to get closer to you. Lord, I want to do community. Everybody in this room represents a different pace of your journey of faith. But here is where you should be able to say, I had a lousy week and I need help in prayer. This is where you should be able to say, I rejoice and give God praise because he did something for me this week. This is where married couples can admit that they're struggling where families can say my kids are wandering and it breaks my heart and I'm wondering what if I'm to blame where where people who get pregnant don't have to run and hide but can come and say I've messed up help me where people that are lonely can say I need love where people that are needing money don't have to go under the IRS or the CRA scrutiny of of did you let me judge your spending habits but rather let's walk this together and again grace is not ignoring sin Grace is confronting sin and promising that we'll walk it together. And this you'll see in how the church confronts its elders. So you'll notice, number one, be cautious and even protective. That's verse 19. Paul starts with caution. He tells Timothy to even be protective. Now, if you guys remember, since I've been here, I've talked about the difference between character versus reputation. All right? Character, and again, if you haven't written it down yet, I challenge you to write it down. Character is what God says about you. Character is what God says about you. Reputation is what men or women say about you. Okay? And many people, if you look at their reputation, you could be led astray because it's not necessarily in line with their character. And we see that every day. Paul uses again the Old Testament in this particular passage because notice what he says in verse 19. He says, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You're back to the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 19.15. By the way, it was also in Deuteronomy 17 this morning. Plug again for why we should read our Bibles together. Matthew chapter 18, verse 16. We are to do this thing where Paul says, even in confronting each other in the church, he says what? If you go to someone one-on-one and it doesn't work, then he says, go and get one or two witnesses, others. Go get a couple more people and go and do it together so that every word can be established. Now, you need to understand, Paul is not trying to keep elders from accusation. He's trying to keep elders from false accusation. And believe me, it's a problem. Jesus Christ was falsely accused. So was Joseph, Moses, David, Jeremiah, Nehemiah, Paul, Peter, and countless others. The great reformer John Calvin wrote this. I'm amazed when I read John Calvin who wrote in the 1500s. He says, as soon as any charge is made against ministers of the word, it is believed as surely and firmly as if it had already been proved. That's the way of saying you're guilty until proven innocent, not the other way around, right? He goes, this happens not only because of a higher standard of integrity is required from them, but because Satan makes more people, in fact, nearly everyone, 
overindulgence so that without investigation, they eagerly condemn their pastors whose good name they ought to be defending. I have lived this out in so many ways. But just one example, one of the elders I was in ministry with, as we were transitioning Grace Baptist Church into a plurality of elders, and we were making some changes, and uh, one of the men in our church was a staunch King James-only guy. I mean, he really believed, in fact, his position on it was that the King James was not only the only Bible that English people should read, that the King James 1611 actually corrected the Greek and Hebrew. That's what he believed. So he came to my office to argue that with me and my buddy Richard. And so when we were doing that, he, after 45 minutes of listening to this guy yell and scream and spit, he literally spit at me at one point, um, we got into a discussion about how his position was infecting all the other people of our church. And so he started to list off what the people in his camp were doing and that they were meeting on Wednesday nights to have a quote-unquote prayer meeting time. Now what we discovered was that there wasn't a lot of prayer happening at the meeting, but a lot of roast pastor elder at the meeting where they dissected everything that was being done and said by the pastors. So Richard, in a moment of haste, wanting to make a point to Dean, smacked his leg that, like that and said, Dean, the folks in that prayer meeting don't pray, and in fact they do damn all. And that's all he said. And as soon as it was out of his mouth, he was devastated that he let it pass his lips. And Richard instantly broke down in tears and begged Dean to forgive him. Because even though Richard was right, he said it in the wrong way. Dean then breaks down in prayer, in, in, in tears, and, and offers forgiveness back. And they hug each other and all these different types of things. Well, a week later, I get called to a meeting with these men and some other men. And then I'm given a letter. And in the letter was this. These are an issues of things we want to deal with. And one of them was the ill, short temper of the associate pastor was on the letter. And so my concern was when, when I got this letter and I was now in a room with what was me, one pastor and another man, now was me, that pastor and six other men, my question was, how did the other five men find out about what happened in the privacy of my office? And why was it spun that the associate pastor was short-tempered when in front of me there was tears shed, forgiveness sought and offered and accepted and hugging and prayer and was done? So I can tell you that in said meeting, before we even started, I immediately said, this item is not going to be discussed. And here's the reason why. So against an elder, I would not accept this charge because I said, for one, there's not two or three witnesses. And in fact, this was dealt with. And so this is why we have to be cautious. Give leaders, listen, church, give leaders what you yourself would want, fairness, truthfulness, and a balanced, balanced approach. Again, this is not saying pastors don't make mistakes or fail, but how it's characterized. So listen, can I just say this? Words hurt. Words hurt. What we say to each other and behind each other's back hurt. And we need to be careful. So we need to be cautious. But secondly, we need to be courageous and firm. 
Notice what he says next. He goes in verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So Paul does, now Paul, what, look what Paul says. He says those who persist in sin, what that means, they indulge in it. They are probably denying it. They're unrepentant about it, but it's been proven. It's been established and even confronted. And modern examples of this would be guys like Mark Driscoll and Darren Patrick even Jimmy Swaggart from back in the, in the 90s and stuff like that. These were men that persist in their sin. They deny it. And when this happens, a church is called to rebuke those pastors openly and expose it. And just as the church is called to respect and listen to and follow their leaders, leaders must also understand that I and that we, the elders, are, will, are and will answer to God. And Hebrews 13 tells us this. In Hebrews 13, it says that pastors will give an account to God for everyone under their ministry. But notice what James says in James 3.1. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. And so that fear might come to the other elders, to the whole church. Solomon said in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And I love John MacArthur sums it up well. He says, the ministry is a two-edged sword. Those who serve faithfully are to be honored and protected. But those who sin are to be removed and publicly rebuked. Now, how are we to do this? Number three, be consistent and fair. And that's our next verse in verse 21. Paul gives this amazing uh, motivation. He says, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Again, John Calvin says this, And indeed, the man who is not shaken out of his carelessness and laziness by the thought that the government of the church is conducted under the eye of God and his angels, I love this, must be worse than stupid. That's what Calvin says. If you don't understand that we do this under the watchful eye of God and his angels, then you must be worse than stupid. That's probably a reason why he was so popular in the 1500s. God, Christ Jesus, and elect angels. Listen, that's quite a jury, isn't it? When you talk about a jury of your peers, there's no such thing in the church. Because the jury of the church is God and his son, Jesus Christ, his spirit, and the elect angels. See, you are as a church, we are as leaders, and together we collectively that make up the bride of Christ here are to obey this because God is to be feared and not men. Not popular opinion, not convenience, not favoritism. We are to have accountability in our church. We're supposed to have loving confrontation in our church. We're supposed to have a loving responsibility in our church. We're supposed to have good, holy purity in our church. Not just opinions, but commands. It's what makes our gospel authentic and Jesus real. And that's why we understand that Ephesians 6 is real. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and darkness and evil in high places. That's why we got to do this. And yes, it's scary. It's not easy to confront leadership, but it has to be done. And that's another reason why you need a plurality of elders. Because if one gets out of line, the other should raise up and rebuke him and call him to account now, with a pastor, this does not mean when a pastor fails you one time, that's it, get the jury out, build the gallows. 
That's not what that's talking about. Remember, we still got to follow Deuteronomy. We still got to follow Matthew 18. I will fail you. I will make promises and forget. I will screw up. I will do all of those things. The idea is you call, email, we get together, we talk it through, and when I've offended you or failed you, I ask you to forgive me. I seek to make it right. But if I consistently do it, and I consistently make excuses for it, and I consistently deny it, and I consistently act like I know more than you do, God says, get rid of me. That's what God says. Publicly take care of it. Even though it's rough, even though it's tough, this is what we are supposed to do. Now, how do you protect your this? Number three, how the church confirms their elders. How the church confirms their elders. Again, John MacArthur does sum it up well. He says this, The best way to prevent unqualified elders from serving in the ministry is to not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. So in other words, you want to have good elders? Make sure you pick good elders. Make sure they are truly God-called and church-affirmed. Again, I read these stats a couple of weeks ago. Lawrence Wilson writes, The pastorate is quickly becoming one of the highest stress professions in the world, in the West. According to the New York Times, members of the clergy now suffer from obesity, hypertension, and depression at rates higher than most in America and Canada. In the last decade, their use of antidepressants has risen exponentially while their life expectancy has fallen. Many would change jobs if they could. The clergy has the second highest divorce rate amongst all professions. 25% 25% of pastors' wives see their husband's work, uh, work schedule as a source of conflict. 33% felt burnt out within their first five years of ministry. 33% say that being in ministry is an outright hazard to their family. Now, let me flip the coin on this. This is a challenge for churches to care for their elders, not only in respect and remuneration, but deeper still to support your elders in prayer, love, friendship, and accountability, and yes, confrontation. But it might also point out to a couple of other things. When I read these stats, it also made me think of my childhood, my teenage years, and my college years. In the 80s and 90s, especially in Baptist churches, too many people were manipulated into the ministry. In other words, there were far too many people that went to be pastors who were mommy and daddy called and not God called. Too many were emotionally cajoled by altar calls and by camps where people were given great guilt trips that if you didn't come and serve Jesus in the pulpit and in missions, you were less than Christian. Remember, Others were attracted to the ministry by what they saw as the perks of the ministry. In Acts chapter 8, you read about Simon the sorcerer. When he saw the power of the apostles and the preaching of Philip, he thought he could buy it. And what does Paul say to him? Get behind me. You are filled with Satan. John gives us a wonderful example of this in the last few verses of 3 John when he says this, I have written something to the church. And notice he says, But Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us and not content with that. He refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Here's the reaction. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. 
Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also had our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. So what does Paul tell us in verse 22? Three things. He says, be careful, be convinced, be convicted. Notice what he says in verse 22. He says, do not be hasty in laying out of hands. Take no part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So he says, be careful. Don't just rush to get people ordained into the ministry. Don't, make, don't be in a rush to tell them that they're called to be pastors. And then be convinced. Be convinced that they're truly God-called and church-deformed. And be convicted. In other words, don't get involved in the foolishness just because you want to look like you're a good church that has lots of leaders. And keep yourself pure. Now, folks, listen, I'm not denying the struggle and attack on many pastors today. I think I've made that very clear. But we must be super careful to take the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1 very seriously. Because the Bible expects a church to trust, listen to, and follow the examples of the leaders. And it should be beautiful and a safe thing to do. And it's hard to confront. It's usually painful. It usually has consequences both within the church and without. And then finally, in verses 23 down, we've got a really big principle. And here's where I may step in it, all right? So <coughs> pastors and all Christians need to know how to take care of themselves and be at peace with God about it. So Paul finishes up with this very personal thought in verse 23. Notice again, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your, sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So Paul, now think about, review 1 Timothy. Paul has called Timothy to pray, to lead, to be an example, to teach, to preach, to disciple, to love, to be holy, to be consistent, to be courageous, to care for God's church, to give the church at Ephesus a shining example of what good leadership looks like, all the way from the personal to the corporate. <laughs> now I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of Paul's words here, not only to Timothy and Ephesus, but also to the Corinthians and to the Romans. And basically what he's saying is, Timothy, look, to be truly free, and again, if you write stuff down, write this down, to be truly free is to love someone for their good, even to your hurt. Now let me say that again. To be truly free is to love someone for their good, even to your hurt. Now Stop. Don't think, yeah, that's right, man, give it. And I hope that brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so is here to, here to hear you say that. No, no, I want you to personally apply this to you. Who do you love, who do you love so much that you want to love them to their good, even to your hurt? In this church, in your marriage, in your family, in your relationships, who do you do that? Jesus does for you already, doesn't he? Hasn't Jesus loved us for our good to his hurt? Every single day. How are you feeling? How's your day been going? How's your week? Well, let me tell you something. Pastor Tim Kirst says, he's known for saying this. Pastor I know in Ontario, he says every time, I'm doing better than I deserve. Whenever he's asked, how are you doing? Steve, I'm doing better than I deserve. Imagine if you and I thought like that every single day. No matter what our plight, I'm still doing better than I deserve. Paul reminds Timothy to be real, practical, not, and even weak. Now, let me once and for all, <laughs> that's optimistic thinking on my part, put this verse to rest. First, let me say what this is not about. 
Paul is not giving Timothy a green light to socially drink or that he should now teach the church to start drinking. That is not what this verse is all about. Paul has just told Timothy, back a couple of verses, to keep himself pure, not to take part in the sins of others. But Paul has also said in this very letter, back two chapters, especially in chapter 4, that Paul said denying yourselves of food or different types of drinks in the pursuit of holiness is not the gospel. So asceticism, where you beat yourself up. Paul does tell Timothy, look, you need to take care of yourself physically. And in this case, that's what they had to deal with. In his world, the water was drunk. They didn't have clean drinking water like you and I have it. And so they added parts of alcohol to it to kill any bugs or different things that was in it and then they could drink it for purity's sake that's what this is about it was medicinal in the actual context of this verse it's medicinal he is not giving timothy a green light to go down to yellow bellies and have a pint all right that's not what he's saying Now, we need to admire and even emulate Paul and Timothy's freedom for others, but we almost realize that legalism and asceticism are also evil and sinful. So I will say on the other side of the coin, nowhere in this book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 does it forbid anybody from having a drink. That's just the facts. It does forbid, from Genesis to Revelation, ever being drunk. Ever. Now, so... You have your freedom, but if you love somebody and you love Jesus, you will use your freedom for the glory of God and not for your rights. So I remember when our kids were younger, I don't know if I've told you this or not, but when I first started at Grace Baptist, we had a worker's covenant that I had to sign that said I wouldn't drink, I wouldn't play with a deck of cards, I would wear a shirt and tie to work every day to the office, I wouldn't attend movies, my wife would wear a skirt, Although I had to sign that every year. I had to stand up in front of the church every, every annual business meeting and pledge my allegiance to the Workers' Covenant. Now, when we did that, my kids got old enough, especially our boys. Abby hasn't experienced this, but our boys did, where they would come to me and say, could they go to movies? Now, the irony of this legalism was, according to the church, my boys could go to the movies, but mom and dad couldn't, which is always a great thing about legalism because it never makes sense. All right? So my boys would come to me and say, Dad, how come you can't take us to the movies? And I would tell them very honestly, boys, there's nothing wrong with going to the movies. Now, we need to be stewards about what movie we go to watch. But here's the reason why mom and dad don't go. It's not because we're not free to go and not because we don't have the right to go. But because we love Jesus so much and we love these people so much, we waive our freedom, our rights for a greater freedom, which is to love others. And dad needs to teach and preach our church about this so we can move them. About three or four years later, not only did I go to the movies, can I tell you this? When, uh, I forget what was it, that marriage movie that came out. What marriage movie was that? Huh? Tell me. Fireproof. When that came out, I actually took about 70 people from our church and we all went to the movies. All right? It took years of preaching and teaching and guiding them, but eventually we got past it. So listen, are you free to have a drink? Yes. But if you're around people that are going to be hurt or offended or they're going to stumble and fall or they've struggled with alcohol, are you more free to love them and deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus? Yes. That's what that's about. This verse is about Paul Paul telling Timothy, listen, don't be so bound up by legalism that you don't take care of yourself. 
but continue to love. And that's what we need to learn from this. Now, verses 24 and 25, Paul ends with a call of discerning and commitment. He says, some sin you'll know, some you won't. Some good works you'll know, some you won't. Let me scare you as we end, all right? Again, the Old Testament, Numbers 32, 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord. And here's a statement my mother used to say to me a lot. And be sure your sin will find you out. It's a great parenting tool. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 10. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows that he also will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary in well-doing for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We need to make sure we understand as individuals and as a church how to apply this truth to our lives and to our church and to leadership. We are to care for the church leaders. We are to confront church leaders. We are also to be cautious with our church leaders and make sure that we do. Mark Driscoll, who fell from grace, had started not only a church but a denomination, got way ahead of himself, became angry and a bully and all of these things. And not only was he removed from ministry, but his church fell apart, an entire denomination fell apart. And only a couple years later when he was interviewed, here's what he said, my talents were ahead of my character. We need to be careful as a church that we don't elevate people too quickly without maturity. And while it might look like all of their good works is right there to be seen, we need to make sure that we're all weak. God told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. Talking about Saul. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So we need to be a people that look within ourselves and then ask God to help us look within each other as we do life. And so we're not afraid to ask each other awkward questions. And we have honest, honest conversations. But we also are not to grow weary in well-doing. He says almost the exact same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. He says, therefore, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So when you do things and no one thanks you, God sees it. When you think you are doing things and getting away with it, uh, <clears throat> God sees it. So don't you be afraid and wonder, man, I wonder what my pastor does in that office all day long. Trust me, God sees it. And I have to remind myself when I serve or I sacrifice or I do things and I feel like nobody knows or nobody sees it or nobody thanks me, who was I doing it for in the first place? A pat on the back or the glory of God? And do you really think you're going to serve God on this side of heaven and get to glory and God go, oh, I'm something, sorry, man, I forgot that one? Do you really think your God is that small? And so that's what we need to realize. So let's bring the train into the station, ask you a few personal questions. How do you personally view your elders? How do you see me and Steve Daw and Jeff and Paul and Daniel? All of them, not just me, but all of us. How do you personally support your elders? How do you personally do that? Can I ask you, when was the last time you prayed for me? And I don't just mean I pray for Steve, but prayed for my holiness, prayed for me to work hard in the Word of God. I will tell you that, and I'll say this because she's not here to see it, she's upstairs, but the greatest compliment I've ever been paid in ministry happened since I've been at this church. 
where one day I came afterwards and a lady came up to me and she said, Pastor Steve, I'll tell you this, no matter how you preach, no matter if you think you did well or you did very, very terribly, no matter what the situation is, I do know this, I can always tell you worked hard at your sermon. I will tell you, I went home and cried about that. That was a great compliment, one that I was very pleased to get. Because I want the church to know that though through my talents and my giftings may come and go and go up and down and all these things, that I want you to know that I work hard at preparing to preach and teach to you, the church. Do you pray for us and encourage us and love us and come alongside us? Do you respect us and seek to understand, trust, listen to, and even follow your elders? Do you understand how to confront your elders and would you? Do we as a church understand our calling to pray for and encourage and look for those in our midst who God is calling to ministry? Do we honestly believe that this kind of interest in each other is for our good and the good of the church? And are you starting to understand that Jesus loves the church and we're called to do so as well? Jesus is the true head, the husband who cares and protects and loves and purifies is coming back for his bride. Listen, this church is the bride of Christ, so we should be slow to make fun of it or criticize it and look for ways to come alongside. Now, in closing, imagine... Imagine, I want to almost, in a court setting, ask you to close your eyes and visualize this. What would it look like if every one of us here, all of us included, started doing what God has called us to do? If we did it through the power of God's Spirit with Christ as our example and God as our Father, if you, each one of you, and then all of us started reading God's Word with this type of attitude, if we started praying these types of prayers, if we started thinking in this type of way, if we started seeking God's glory and obedience to Jesus and power from His Holy Spirit to be a church just like this, a changed, humble, holy, seeking Jesus in us through His Word, deepening our relationship from prayer with Jesus and each other, and doing life together, sharing this life with others. Calvary, what would happen to this city if we started doing this, every one of us? I believe revival would start in here and then out there. So this day, I'm asking you and me, all of us, am I, are we willing to walk worthy of the calling to which we have been called? And do any of you here this morning and you'd say, I feel like God's calling me something more than just service religion then come and talk to me after. And is there someone in this room who would say, you know, Pastor Steve, I listen to you talk, but I don't know if I know Jesus the way you do. Then I'd like to tell you how you can. Jesus shows us how and why we are the mess we are, but then he lived and died and rose again to forgive us and redeem us and change us. So church, friends, elders, what will your response be today? Will you and I now rise and respond to this sermon from God's word? And will you and I sing out to God our Father, revive us again? Let's close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. It was a personal sermon. It was a very difficult sermon. Lord, personally, on a personal level, these are sermons I don't like. They're hard for me to preach, hard to be creative, hard to me, for me, even from my perspective, to be captivating. But Lord, these are needful things to be said. So Lord, I pray that the seed of the word of God will find hearts that will receive it. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in my heart, in the lives of my family, in the lives of everybody in our church family. 
Lord, as we seek your will about building new facilities and planting churches and raising money and giving sacrificially and serving selflessly, Father, give us a vision for what it means to be a real church and change us from the inside out. And Father God, start with me, I pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.